I have some terrible news before we start the pod. I dropped my computer mouse, and it's fine, except that the scroll wheel is broken, which is maddening. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrible. Uh, I've got some good news. After this, I have my vaccine appointment, so... uh, gonna go ahead and do that y'all should uh, remember to contact your local pharmacies and get your vaccine appointment set up um i did call to make sure that it was covered by my insurance and the fact that the guy was willing to like like humor me and be like yeah we'll check if it's against your insurance is an indictment of this fucking system (laughs) well i mean unfortunately it probably is good that they checked you're right absolutely but yeah, like when I went to go get mine, I saw a bunch of people get turned away. So I'm glad that it sounds like yours is going to go a lot more smoothly than that in our incredibly well-functioning best healthcare system in the world that definitely works and isn't a big shit show. America's number one, baby. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to explain how, but number one in some way. We're number one in explaining how, too, but you have to sign up for our premium course on Masterclass. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, I guess before we get into this, I mean, on a more serious note, we're recording this Saturday morning, so, like, uh, the big, big news story this morning is uh, the surprise uh, offensive by the forces of resistance in Palestine against the Zionist occupation forces that launched this morning, and I just want to mention it because inevitably that means there will be horrific response from the fascist government in Israel, which will be backed and is already being backed full-throated by every organ of the United States government and the EU, <laughs> and in, in, in a way that may seem ironic and strange to people who haven't been following it closely, even the government of Ukraine, mm-hmm. who you would think... If we're, you know, this whole noble occupation thing was the core of the crisis, would be in solidarity with the people who have been occupied for seventy-five years. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's on its face is what it is. I mean, we're not really surprised by that, but yeah, solidarity, free Palestine, and uh, you know, we gotta end this apartheid regime. Yeah, and resi- just just to make it perfectly clear, re- armed resistance to occupation is not terrorism. It is decolonization in action. Mm-hmm. That's right. Absolutely. But yeah, let's uh, get going with the show. Stoppage. This is your favorite labor podcast. My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. And if you don't, that's okay, but you're not getting access to all of the awesome bonus content that we post there pretty regularly. So go ahead and check it out and see what you're missing and maybe decide to donate to us. If you're not in the Discord already, please hop in there. It's a really awesome place where you can find lots of great resources and the reading group that happens on Tuesdays. Message us on Patreon if you need stickers, and I'll walk over to the post office for you. And I'd like to just say, if you want to help the show, please do actually 
actually go and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I know I crack jokes about this, but some random jet ski dealership-ass people's managers have been going on there and leaving us one-star reviews because we're too fucking funny for them. So uh, <laughs> if, if you want to help the show, please do actually go write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Or, and I, as I always say, you can just carve it into a park bench if you really want. Yeah, we, we, we <laughs> do right. greatly appreciate the support. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. Well, uh, we got to start with a little bit uh, as we talk about telling jokes uh, about laughing at Drew Barrymore, who right. uh, I guess uh, what is it? The the working class will remember this, uh, and yeah, uh, they have decided that the the writers are uh, gonna not return. I guess. Yeah, like we talked, you know, just a couple of weeks ago before the end of the writer's strike about the fact that Drew Barrymore attempted to bring her television show that uh, I think approximately seven people had heard of before the strike back onto the air because the viewers desperately needed the return of the Drew Barrymore show uh, in spite of the fact that it would have been crossing the WGA picket line. Uh, And then, you know, after getting called out for it appropriately, Barrymore, you know, reversed course announced that she would not be bringing the show back and then of course last week as we we talked about the strike the wga strike ended in a in a big victory for the writers there, extracting concessions from the studios that beforehand they they said was impossible and because of that uh, you know as folks any of our listeners who actually watch late night talk shows although i'm not sure how much of a crossover there's gonna be there yeah let us know in the discord yeah like this week uh has been the first week that those shows have come back because the writers are no longer on strike however one show that isn't coming back with the same staff as you said lena is the drew barrymore show who after the strike end went back to their writing staff who they had tried to stab in the back and said hey do you guys want to come back and their three writers are all like nah we're gonna go somewhere where they don't betray us, which I just think is a huge power move, and I love it. Yeah, that's right, and that's why we folks at the Drew Barrymore Show are so excited to be <laughs> announcing that our show will now be written, directed, and produced by Tim Pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> but yeah, well, uh, we do have uh, much more actual news to uh, to cover today. I mean, because right on the heels of the VFX workers at Marvel becoming the first VFX unit in a major studio to unionize with, with IATSE, their counterparts at Walt Disney Pictures won official recognition uh, of their you know decision to join IATSE as well. On Tuesday, October 3rd, 13 VFX workers at Disney voted unanimously, unanimously, hell yeah, in favor of joining the film and production union. Uh, We have a quote here from Mac Robinson, who is a Disney VFX worker, who said, quote, For so long, we've wanted the same protections as everyone else, but there is no hope in sight. Winning this election was a long fight, but I'm proud to say that it's been won by each and every VFX worker wanting a brighter, sustainable future future end quote and i mean the workers have pointed out that the recent labor upsurge including this year's historic strikes by the wga and sag after have helped inspire the workers to fight for a union and the protections that come with it that they have all wanted for years yeah and this is, I mean, every time we see one of these stories, I'm always just like, I know like VFX has gotten more and more and more uh, important in film production, especially recently in the past like couple of decades. Uh, I think it's, it kind of parallels the rise of like streaming services, I think, mm-hmm. as more and more places are trying to put out more content with more effects shots. Every Still, every time I see one of these, I'm like, how were the VFX workers not already in IATSE? <laughs> because it's just like, 
every other part of the production. Uh, it, it's it's wild that you know the industry managed to hold off an organizing wave for this long. And it's really inspiring to finally see that taking off. I think some people might be a bit confused by the fact that this is a unit of only 13 uh, members, but it's specifically a group of VFX workers at, at Disney who like interact like during production rather than in post-production, which is I think a role that a lot of people don't necessarily like know VFX workers do because like, most of VFX productions in post, but, you know, with so many productions these days being so effects shot heavy, it, it, it's not really going to work from a production angle if you have a complete disconnect by the the artists, all the folks who have to make your movie look the way that you want it, mm -hmm. if you aren't working with them while you're making, you know, the production in process. Yeah, well, and for VFX, you need uh, special costume designers. You need green screen lighting mm -hmm. engineers, which is a different kind of lighting from regular lighting. You need people to come on and do different kinds of coordination. You need someone to run all the motion tracking software. You need some, like, this is actually highly specialized work. And this is one of the things that had me thinking a, a little more deeply about this, because these aren't just people who sit in front of a computer. These are people who are on set interacting mm -hmm. with other unionized employees who are making these movies all day and so it, it's got to be r really odd i mean it just strikes me as really odd that they already weren't represented by iotsi but i guess that's the that's the same thing we're fighting against now with the ai right every time there's right. a new or streaming there's a new bit of technology and they try to silo it off and say oh this can't possibly be covered by our contract language because we're just we're too dumb to figure it out well i think yeah. the, the obvious comparison and we're going to get to this in our last story is to ev production mm -hmm. like there's absolutely no reason for people making EV cars to not be both in a union and have the exact same, you know, conditions that workers make in gas cars. And it's the same thing for these VFX workers. Like when you have all the other production workers, they're, they are doing the same like core function and they should have all the same protections. And it's really dope to see that IATSE organizers are putting so much effort into making that a reality. Right. Well, and speaking to that, I mean, the organizers at IATSE have said that they hope that this is the start of a wave that will sweep through the VFX industry and bring workers into the union fold, much as the other production workers in lighting, sound, costumes, and other fields have been for years. Workers say that they want to fight uh, to end unpaid overtime, which is ridiculous that that's allowed, but you'd be surprised at things that are allowed in, uh, you know, uh, entertainment productions. Uh, they also want to win improved benefits and generally bring conditions in the video effects uh, industry up to the same union standard as other IOTC jobs that have, you know, all been doing their own struggles over decades. And I mean, this is a really great start for that. I mean, for instance, unlike IOTC workers, currently only 12% of VFX workers have consistent healthcare benefits that don't get cut at the end of an individual project. This gig model that has been used for VFX workers often sees the workers themselves forced to uh, put in 14 to 16 hour days. I mean, the crushing conditions have led to massive turnover in the field, which is not surprising at all. I mean, as soon as you get over 12 hours, there's no way that like your burnout meter doesn't just go sky high. Well, and and one of the things that's definitely, you know, as we've been following this, this organizing push by IATSE, that's been an education for me, has been precisely how bad the conditions are for so many VFX workers. Because I kind of just had this idea of like, oh, you work in visual effects, so you pretty much all do post-production. You're probably part of like a third-party studio that's like got, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 artists or something, and they work 
the the company works contract to contract, but you work for this, you have a steady employment for this one company. Maybe they treat you like shit, but you have a steady job. And it's really been, that's again, been an eye-opening thing to learn that no, in fact, for a huge percentage of VFX workers, it's basically a gig job where like you don't have benefits that carry over job to job. Your hours change contract to contract, like, and where you have to constantly be putting in, it's like basically, it reminds me a lot of crunch in the video game industry, Mm -hmm. but all the time. Which is horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised as a, a an audio gig worker that that happens. I mean, there are definitely more audio workers that are unionized than video effects workers. But still, even in my industry, it can be really hard to uh, nail down solid work. But uh, I mean, well, audio suffers from a different thing, which is that they're trying to de-skill it as a trade, which is a fucked up and bad in a different way but yeah yeah that's true uh we do have a, another quote here from mark patch a vfx artist who recently worked on the christopher nolan sci-fi action blockbuster tenant which i have not heard of told variety they, at the- don't bother <laughs> it's a big fucking mess christopher nolan's a hack oh yeah, okay fuck christopher nolan <laughs> yeah. just an so- annoying filmmaker Mark Patch told Variety that their sites are set higher than just one or two shops, saying, quote, We're organizing more studios, which we hope to announce in the coming weeks slash months. But the hope is to try to set an industry standard contract for all work. This is not about Marvel or Disney. It is about VFX workers throughout Hollywood and demanding respect for the work that we do. End quote. And I mean, organizers have encouraged other VFX workers to reach out to IATI, and they have actually set up a website in order to do that, which is vfxunion.org. Again, that's vfxunion.org. If you know people who are in the video effects industry, send them that link. Like, Absolutely. And just to clarify real quick, my criticisms of Tenet have to do with the direction, not to do with the actually quite impressive visual effects. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people complain about visual effects, but visual effects have gotten really good in the last few years. It's just that studios tend to rely on them disproportionately compared to other types of effects or other choices they could have made in filmmaking because they underpay the workers and it's Mm -hmm. cheaper to do that. So Mm -hmm. this is also a way to not just fight for these workers to have better working conditions, but also to give them opportunities to work on better projects and to have the end result that reaches you, the person at home clicking your little remote thing, to actually see something worth fucking watching. A hundred percent. Yeah. So let's uh, let's hope that we see a giant wave in this industry as we have in many others. Yeah, absolutely. So, and in another quick follow up. Uh, so just you know, a, a couple episodes back on episode one seventy two, we talked about a strategic strike by some RAs, resident assistants at Tufts University, who basically have been fighting for a while to get better conditions, but not with a lot of response from the administration. And so they made the strategic move to strike on the single busiest day for RAs at any university, which is move-in day. Uh, And since then, their strike seems to have been quite successful because they have now ratified new union contracts overwhelmingly, 96% uh, in a 95-4 vote. And they managed to win, uh, you know, quite a lot of gains. Uh, Before they went on this strike, they were basically only compensated for their work with free uh, lodging and like a meal plan. They've now won an additional $1,425 stipend as well as additional meals amounting to a nearly 50% increase in their compensation. And additionally, they, they won 
uh, an ad- additional compensation when they work long shifts on uh, holidays where they're going to be given basically like a $50 credit to use at businesses around campus. It's like a gift card. I, there was something like this when I went to college. We had like two different funds. You had like a dedicated meals only fund where you, it, you could get like more contribution because it's for food. And then there was a like, you can use this at the bookstore and like businesses in the town and stuff. So this is basically like that. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, previously they were also subject to have an unlimited number of residents that they were responsible for 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Now they actually have maxes on that where in the first year they only are responsible for a maximum of 30 people and then after that 50. So, I mean, just the fact that there is a maximum set on how many people that they're required to be responsible for is a huge win. And an important addition to that, they will now have official job descriptions, which will help reduce the workloads of the RAs who, again, were subject to any and all issues at the drop of a hat. Well, yeah, I mean, that's always a big one. And I think it's one that I I think a lot of folks don't necessarily immediately recognize is as big of a win as things like, you know, wages or things like that. Because functionally, if you don't have a recorded, written down job description, your job description is whatever your boss says it is. Mm -hmm. And you don't really have much of a leg to stand on to turn down whatever they ask you to do unless it falls into one of the very narrow, specific categories of things they can't legally ask you to do. And even then they can retaliate against you and and it can take a long time before you can actually hold them to account. But with a union-specified contractual job description, you have the full union backing if the boss tries to make you do something that they aren't really paying you for to tell them, uh, no, actually, you guys signed off that this is what my job is. And it's like, we're happy to have you pay somebody else or pay us additional to do this, but you can't just make us do extra work for no reason. Yeah, I mean, bosses will even make you do work that is legally, you are legally uh, entitled to actually refuse to do for safety purposes. And I mean, there's an example of that coming up in a future story uh, on this episode. But uh, so another thing that they had won was uh, was the institution of a labor management community where five RAs and five university re- representatives will meet at least once per semester to discuss issues and interests related to the RAs and the contract uh they also won a grievance procedure as you know basically any good union contract will have for handling disputes between ras and the university so it's a nice big win for these ras it's really important to have something like that where you have a channel between the union and the university where they're going to meet at least once per semester because even though i don't have a lot of faith that the university is going to take those meetings seriously when you come back around to contract negotiations Mm -hmm. and you say we raised this issue and we have documentation Mm -hmm. to prove that we raised it repeatedly and we kept bringing it to your attention that makes such a critical difference when once you're at that stage however many years down the line i don't remember how long this contract is and it could make like a specifically legal difference too because it's Mm -hmm. evidence of bad faith bargaining by the employer so because that's the thing uh you know i think folks may quickly dismiss these sorts of like labor management cooperation organizations as like not effective which is true, but that's not the purpose. Because mm-hmm. again, when you understand that the purpose of these is to like be able to use this as a way to escalate grievances, and then, like you said, John, when the administration almost certainly ignores them or does a bunch of bullshit, you mm-hmm. then have all the evidence you need to say, look, we tried to do this your way, and you told us to fuck off. 
So now we have to strike. Yeah, any fucking technical professional like an accountant or a lawyer or a project manager will tell you documentation is critically important. It's unbelievably important and people overlook it all the time. It's Um, like half my job. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But moving on to a story that we've been talking about for, oh my God, such a long fucking time now. Long time. Yeah. The incredibly long war between the uh, righteous employees of medieval times and their deranged, weird, feudal aristocrat CEO, Perico Montaner. Um, So a year ago, the company attempted to get the social media pages of the workers' union, as you may remember, Medieval Times Performers United, taken down and sued the union for trademark infringement, implying that the name of the union and its logo would create confusion and make customers think the company endorsed the union or that the union was the company or basically (laughs) he thinks people are morons, which is... I guess standard going fair for Spanish aristocrats. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And so these efforts were uh, successful initially in getting the union's TikTok banned, which has resulted in a ULP charge against the company. But on Thursday, September 29th, as reported by Dave Jamieson for the Huffington Post, a federal judge tossed the lawsuit out as ridiculous as any normal person would judge william martini (laughs) cool name (laughs) wrote (laughs) wrote in his decision uh quote the court concludes that there is no plausible likelihood of confusion end quote yeah because like what what else would there possibly be to say about this every union in existence does this unless they're just like we are electrical workers local whatever they're usually like we are employer's name union that's usually it uh, <laughs> yeah, well, and especially since the you know tremendous success of Starbucks Workers United, you the 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 naming trend of employer Workers United or some you know iteration of that has become extremely popular. The other thing I would have just like wanted to point this out, and I know that the whole point of doing all this was just to harass the workers, and mm-hmm. it wasn't really so much whether they won or not. But I would just point out to them, like, do you really think that? If this lawsuit would have worked, that Starbucks would not have tried to do this to Starbucks Workers United already. Like, they have tried everything in the book mm-hmm. to stop that organizing campaign. Like, Mr. Montaner, if they, you could have made this work, they would have done that by now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like the so the judge also correctly stated that the branding of the union was intended to identify the workers as employees of medieval times, which is exactly what they are and could not be considered infringement. And I got to give it up for Judge Bill Martini here. He has at least a fifth grader's reading comprehension level. And that's right. That's pretty cool, man. Great for you, I Bill. Mean, <laughs> by the standards of the United States judiciary, he's doing great. Yeah, really doing incredible. I, I was giving him an ironic gold star, but now it's sincere. Um, <laughs> and we also heard from uh, Suzanne K. Doris, secretary treasurer of the Workers' Parent Union, the American Guild of Variety Artists, also a cool name, said in a statement, quote, the court recognized the absurdity of the company's claim that the public wouldn't be able to tell the difference between medieval times and the union that is advocating for medieval times workers. The dismissal will allow us to continue focusing on what really matters, fair wages, safe working conditions, and respect in the workplace without this needless distraction, which is like, end quote, that is so great wonderful because that is exactly what it is calling it absurd is correct saying we get to focus on what really matters is correct because this is the most obvious smoke and mirrors bullshit i've ever seen maybe in my life and also just 
Just a reminder for any of our listeners in the LA area, the Buena Park Medieval Times folks are still on strike. Mm -hmm. They have been on strike at least six months now, I think probably more like eight or nine. Uh, and the company continues to operate using scabs. So, and they, but the, but the Medieval Times workers continue to pick it. So uh, I know SAG-AFTRA workers have been going out there to show solidarity. So, you know, as long as that strike continues to go on, I definitely encourage folks. It's like, there's going to be all these solidarity pickets and, and help it inform people about why they shouldn't be going to these scab run shows. So yeah, if you're in the LA area, definitely encourage you to, you know, maybe if you get a chance, uh, go out there and show some solidarity in person. Yeah. Experience a rare moment of authenticity in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. They've been getting more common lately. That's LA true. has become quite the union town. That's yeah. true. But one quick point before we move to our next story, I really want to uh, use this to also highlight the fact that there are no repercussions for businesses. This lawsuit was simply thrown out, and the obstructions that this caused to the union have ha- will have no recourse, legally or from the company. I mean, it will simply be just more fodder for the union as an argument against the company, but that only works in public relations, unfortunately. Yeah, they should have given the union control of the trademark. <laughs> Damn, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I mean, for, look, better option, get rid of intellectual property. Secondary option, give the workers control of the elect- intellectual property. That's right. <laughs> but moving into our last follow-up story, really kind of our transition into the, the new big stories of the week here. We talked about it last week, folks, and you know, it looked like it was going to happen, but there have been so many close calls, I really wasn't sure. But this week, we finally did see the long-awaited largest healthcare strike in U.S. history at Kaiser Permanente when 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers walked off and hit the picket lines for three days this week. Uh, Kaiser, of course, as we have been discussing on the show, I feel like since we began, uh, has been intentionally understaffing their facilities for years, forcing patients onto long waiting lists and massively overworking their existing staff, contributing to the huge crisis of burnout in the healthcare system in this country. And of course, critically worsening health outcomes for patients. Workers across several unions, including the SEIU, United Healthcare Workers, and OPEIU, jointly organized as the Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions, have been pushing for the company to increase hiring for years, but they faced dogged refusals from administrators focused entirely on the company's profit margins. So finally, this week, starting on Wednesday, October 4th, 75,000 workers from Kaiser launched the, their major strike. Uh, now, specifically, this is a ULP strike, not just an economic strike, although the the, the workers are on an expired contract. Uh, that The strike is a ULP strike because of the fact that, again, Kaiser continues to refuse to bargain on safe staffing, which is the most important issue for both the workers and the patients at Kaiser. And so a big part of this strike is really to just force the company to come back to the table and bargain over this absolutely critical issue. And so the three-day strike, which lasted from the 4th to the 6th, Wednesday to Friday of this past week, hit Kaiser-owned facilities in five different states. California, of course, is the epicenter and is where Kaiser Permanente is headquartered, but it's also included hospitals and clinics in Washington, Oregon, Colorado, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. Some of the workers I know that, that struck in Virginia who only struck for one day we're actually not i don't believe technically part of this group but are also kaiser employees who because this is a ulp strike and not an economic strike it then made it legal i believe for them to conduct a a one-day sympathy strike 
as part of this. So now, of course, Kaiser continues to say, oh, we don't know why there was a strike. We're having such good negotiations. We're offering across the board wage increases for the first time ever, which is like, that's great. That's wonderful. I didn't hear anything in your statement about staffing, the thing that everyone is fucking talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things, you know, that's been one of the big PR moves by Kaiser is to just simply never mention uh, staffing. Just don't talk about the demand that uh, all the workers are actually focused on. And uh, getting into where we're at in the negotiations, according to CNN, Kaiser's most recent offer as far as wages would have given workers 5% raises in the first three years of the contract and a 4% raise in the final year. The union, however, is countered with a a demand for 6.5% raise in the first two years and 5.75% in the last two years. Now, I know that the numbers are uh, hard to do kind of in your head, but to, to show what that impact of that is, right now, these current low starting wage for a Kaiser worker is $21 an hour, which uh, is not enough, in especially in California, <laughs> uh, where the cost of living is very high and really isn't enough for almost anybody anywhere in the country. Uh, now, if you were starting at $21 an hour, with Kaiser's offer, by the end of the four-year contract, your wages would go to $25.20 an hour. Whereas the amount that the union is pushing for would get you to $26.67 an hour, over $3,000 a year uh, difference by the end of the deal. Additionally, though, in addition to those you know, raises for all workers, the workers are specifically demanding an increase for the lowest paid. Uh, raising the starting minimum wage from $21 an hour to at least $25 an hour, which is a v- an absolutely critical demand because, you know, I, I focused on staffing. We focused on staffing a lot when we've talked about this, and it is the big demand. But the cost of living crisis is also really hitting the workers at Kaiser. Uh, one worker who was interviewed by CNN, uh, Rocio Chacon, a member of the bargaining committee, said, quote, As we speak, there are nurses that are sleeping in their cars because of two reasons. One, they can't afford cost of living here, so they have to move two, three hours away. And then, because of short staff, they're working 14, 16 hours, so they're tired. So their best choice is to be Monday through Friday in their cars. That's a crime. That that is a crime being done by Kaiser Permanente there, forcing people to live out of their cars for the majority of the week. Yeah, and these are the people who, again, are, like, doing critical health care. This is, like, cardiology techs. This is the people keeping our hospitals clean, which saves lives. Mm-hmm. Like, every one of these positions is directly involved in patient safety. Because I think people sometimes, they focus, like, like I think sometimes people detach, like, the conditions for healthcare personnel who maybe they don't see as, like, directly interacting with patients. But it's, like, if your conditions for an admittance clerk are really terrible and they're having to sleep in their fucking car that affects that person's health care mm-hmm. because every position in that hospital or that clinic is vital in keeping it running and keeping the people that are there safe and in being able to get the correct care to people as quick as you possibly can and by focusing so much on increasing their profits kaiser is just destroying the quality of care that anybody who goes to these facilities gets and in response to, you know, these these arguments by the union of, hey, you know, people should make enough money and have the appropriate hours so that they don't have to live in their cars, 
Uh, Kaiser's response to the media has been to laud their pay and benefits, telling the the press that, well, you know, they talk about how bad our our pay is, but uh, if if people left and went to a different healthcare company, you know, they'd be looking at an average of a twenty percent cut to their compensation. This is also like the this is that competitive wages argument, which is always mm-hmm. bullshit. It's like, I'm sorry, but what are the, like, what are you making? What is your company doing? Because this is like a hugely, and we're going to talk about this as well, a hugely profitable non-profit in in scare quotes business. Uh, Well, UPMC's employees, let them pay them less. Look, we're not UPMC's employees. <laughs> well, not, yeah, and it's just like an incredible defense of, hey, you don't pay your workers enough. Well, yeah, but our competitors pay them even less. <laughs> like... Cool, that doesn't make you look good. <laughs> Great, you're all criminals. <laughs> Wonderful, good to know. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, well, we'll go for the worst criminals as well, but that doesn't change the position of what you're doing. Like, yeah, it's it's absurd. And ultimately, again, what that is an argument for is not that the workers' demands are unreasonable, but that Kaiser Permanente should not exist and that all of these companies should just be part of the national healthcare system. That's right. But... On Wednesday, as the strike began, union spokesperson Caroline Lucas said, quote, frontline healthcare workers are awaiting a meaningful response from Kaiser executives regarding some of our key priorities, including safe staffing, outsourcing protections for incumbent healthcare workers, and fair wages to reduce turnover, end quote. And the, the question of turnover is really important because it is one that these healthcare companies, including Kaiser, have used to try and defend themselves, blaming the, like, this supposed shortage of healthcare workers because they basically, they, in, in, you know, all their discussions with the press and their press releases, they've pointed out that 5 million healthcare workers have left the industry since the start of the pandemic. And they have then said, look, how are we supposed to hire people? 5 million people left the industry. Uh, why? Why did they exactly. leave the industry? The <laughs> I'm just like, well, yeah, but you you have causality backwards. Five million people left the industry because companies like you don't fucking pay anybody and don't hire enough people to actually do the job. You are causing the supposed shortage. You are blaming for the shortage. You it's like it's a circuit. It's like the there's a labor shortage because there's a labor short. Like that's their argument. We're all trying to find the guy who did this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we literally just pointed out that people are living in their cars five of seven days of the week. We just don't know why people don't want to work for us. Like, it's like, just like fuck. you created these conditions, and then you go and say, "Oh well, these conditions just mean people won't work for us." I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> it's it's. It's it's wild. Uh, listening to any of the Kaiser PR just was just I'm tearing my hair out. But like, and additionally, this is all coming out of a supposed nonprofit whose CEO Gregory Adams is going to make over fifteen million dollars this year, while the company's this nonprofit's profits soared to over two billion dollars in the last quarter alone. And they've made. $24 billion in profits in the last five years, which is pretty good for a company that supposedly doesn't make any profits at all. It's really cool that words just, just can, you could just make them mean whatever you want them to mean at any <laughs> do, given time. I do want to remind people that the NFL was a nonprofit for like the majority of its existence until very recently. I'm surprised the NFL wasn't registered as a church. <laughs> don't give Roger Goodell ideas. <laughs> He's going to figure out ways to get exempt from, like, uh, 
op- occupational healthcare laws. Yeah. <laughs> but, Wait a minute. Do they not have to give priests health insurance? That is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have a new topic for labor research. <laughs> um. So during the three-day strike, Kaiser attempted to operate their facilities using scabs, although uh, attempting to replace 75,000 workers, even with, you know, the rise of the scab nurse industry, is not really feasible. Uh, And so, you know, Armando Velasco, a cardiology tech who was interviewed by More Perfect Union, said that his department normally has 100 workers, and that's not enough. But Kaiser attempted to keep operating it with only 11 scabs. Which is like, if you're already overworked with a hundred people, why just say it's closed? What are you doing? What's even the point? Like, it, eleven people simply cannot get any. It's not a thing where you're only going to get eleven percent of the work that a hundred right. people were getting done. You are going it to get scale that way. None percent of the work. You are going to cause problems and then right. leave. Exactly. And so, and and you know, this is. As with every healthcare strike ever, you always have the attempts to put blame onto the workers for this and say, oh, they don't care about their patients. But in every article I read, even from very mainstream sources like the AP and CNN, you had a few people say they're like, well, you know, it, it's frustrating that my, some of my appointments got moved. But but in general, everybody, I didn't see anybody who was like, we don't know why the workers are striking. This is hurting us. In fact, it was much more common for the people that AP and CNN and other outlets spoke to to be like, yeah, no, we support them. <laughs> well, it, we want better care, and what they're fighting for, we agree with. I, it's it speaks to a, a rising consciousness about like what unions are and do, and like how workers are treated. But I think it also speaks to a rising consciousness about like people are just recognizing that problems are systems now. Mm-hmm. There, it used to be that you go to the restaurant and you get bad service, and you're mad at the person who gave you the bad service, and that's your whole experience with the company. But now, like we've all been put through so many customer service telephone loops and answered bizarre emails and you know been called in the middle of our work day to answer questions about things that patently don't make any fucking sense that i think everybody's just kind of at the point now where they're like who's running this shit who's in charge (laughs) yeah yeah and so you know again the other thing putting the lie to this is that the workers intentionally planned the strike to be three days Mm -hmm. to make their point but to minimize the impact on the operations to be able to serve their patients better. But they have said repeatedly, they're like, look, we, we set this up as a three-day strike because we needed to make our point that we cannot continue operating these systems with so few people. But they've also said that they're like, look, if Kaiser continues to refuse to bargain around staffing in good faith, we are going to have to launch larger strikes. So, uh, you know, we'll see how things are going. The bargaining is set to resume next week. But if Kaiser continues to fuck around like this, we could absolutely see a longer or even potentially an indefinite strike starting as early as November. So we'll definitely keep our eyes on this struggle. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's incredibly important in solidarity to all these workers. And I mean, we're also going to be doing another, not exactly a follow-up, but something that we've talked about recently. And uh, I actually was literally just having a conversation with my grandfather the other night. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this Gavin Newsom guy fucking sucks. And he's like, well, you got to give him a, you know, a little bit. I was like, no, I don't. I don't have to. I don't have to hand it to him, I believe is the the line there. But yeah. What do you hand to the man who already has everything? 
<laughs> yeah, but this motherfucker has continued his anti-worker veto streak this past week, showing his ambitions for a national office by uh, staking out the position even further to the right of the mainstream California Democrats, uh, because a couple weeks ago he had you know, v- vetoed the bill to require safe human observation for robotic semi-trucks rather than allowing them to barrel through residential homes without anyone to stop them. Uh, this week he added a- another to his record, vetoing a bill that would have made striking workers eligible for unemployment insurance. Uh, this is a particularly cruel move coming as it does right after the uh, victorious end of the five-month WGA strike and in the midst of a three-month-long SAG-AFTRA strike, which has seen tens of thousands of workers on the picket line in California. Newsom justified this attack on workers by claiming that California's unemployment insurance system is underfunded and increased payouts could result in higher taxes on employers. Motherfucker, I don't care. Also also, good. Gavin, you are a California Democrat. Who is funding? Who funds the unemployment system? Who fucking decides how much money goes in there? You have had unilateral control of the mm-hmm. state for decades, for life, for most people in California's lifetime, and you have done nothing. Mm-hmm. And and it's funny because every time you point that out, they'll be like, "Well, I don't remember the number, but there's that prop position that was passed a while ago that mm-hmm. makes it so they can't basically they can, it's impossible for them to raise property taxes, right? But it's like, well, okay, that's bad, and you should figure out a way to repeal that, but like. Also, you can raise other taxes. You can raise taxes on employers. <laughs> you can do all sorts of different things to raise revenue. Like you said, John, you're in charge of the government. No. But again, the point here is not that there's nothing that they can do or any, or even that he believes that. It's the fact that he doesn't want to raise taxes on employers because that's where he gets his money from. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, this is one of those things that it's not exclusive to Democrats. All bourgeois politicians want you to think that the only two taxes are property and income, and that's it. And maybe yes. sales. <laughs> they throw in sales once in a while. Occasionally, yeah. they'll throw in sin taxes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah, but that's absolutely. usually because they're doing weird moralizing. But also, this, this veto strikes me as like... A, an escalation because the ai trucks thing that's just kind of like ambiently evil and wrong right like that is going <laughs> to cause harm and danger but it doesn't seem like mean-spirited it just seems like callous and horrible whereas this seems like he said specifically fuck you fuck you uh-huh. california workers mm-hmm. fuck you unions that's what he said we're talking about all of these other ways to raise taxes but unemployment insurance is literally a tax from that is paid by employers mm-hmm they could just raise that. Yeah, the rare tax that's actually used for something good in this country, too. Because so much of the rest of them is just used to buy fucking weapons. Yeah, it's just Raytheon invoices. <laughs> yeah, so anyways, fuck Gavin Newsom, who's clearly doing this eyeing potential national office in the future. So never, ever be fooled that this motherfucker gives one shit about any workers. This fucking winery owner-ass dickhead i can't wait for the 2028 democratic primaries where i get to listen to newsom and fetterman argue over who supports Ugh. israel better oh my yeah. god <laughs> uh, let's well anyway yeah yeah let's <laughs> say but yeah in more news on the bourgeois state you know yeah. causing problems for workers yeah absolutely so we got some unfortunate uh news here although uh I feel like the business press was a little quick to to gleefully rush onto this story, and I I don't think it's quite as impactful as they necessarily think so. But 
Unfortunately, this week we did see yet another instance of the how heavily slanted the legal system in this country is against workers, where the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union uh, on the West Coast, has unfortunately been forced to announce plans to declare bankruptcy as a part of a long-running dispute with port operators in Portland, Oregon. Now, to be clear, this does not mean the ILWU is shutting down, going away, stopping organizing, or even stopping striking or anything like that, as much as some of these headlines might want you to think that. This, this move is not going to break down the union's ability to organize on the docks, but it will unfortunately sap its ability to build much of a strike fund for a while, which is it really, again, highlights how anti-worker U.S. labor law is. And this all stems out of a old case from 2012 that has been working its way through the legal system for over a decade. When the company operating the port of uh, Portland, Oregon, began giving union work to non-union contractors... Uh, in response, the ILWU launched a slowdown strike against the company, uh, intentionally slowing down the pace of loading and unloading of cargo to protest the outsourcing of union work. The company sued the ILWU, alleging that the slowdown was illegal, and dogged the union in court for seven fucking years until a federal jury handed down an absurd verdict awarding the company $93.6 million dollars in damages. <laughs> this ridiculous sum was eventually later reduced on appeal, but still stayed at a exorbitant $19 million. And so, uh, the, uh, unfortunately, though, even that was not enough to satisfy International Container Terminal Services, Inc., uh, ICTSI, the company operating the port, which refused to accept the appeals uh, court's verdict and appealed again to the next level of, of court. In response, the ILWU has declared that they simply can't afford to keep pouring and tons and tons of money into a legal defense in a system that is so heavily weighted against them. And so they intend to declare bankruptcy, turn over most of the union's $9.5 million in cash on hand to ICTSI to settle the, uh, the like lawsuit amount and then begin rebuilding from a clean slate. Damn, they should be called International Container Interminable Services Incorporated because this shit is a way out of hand. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is ridiculous. And so ILWU President Willie Adams said, quote, while we have attempted numerous times to resolve the decade-long litigation with ICTSI Oregon, at this point, the union can no longer afford to defend against ICTSI's scorched-earth litigation tactics. We intend to use the Chapter 11 process to implement a plan that will bring this matter to resolution and ensure that our union continues to do its important work for our members and the community, end quote. It's, it sucks that they're forced into this position, uh, but, I mean, I guess this does seem like a decent option. Yeah, yeah I mean, within the system, like the, the only other option would be to, like, try and escalate and get them to, to drop the lawsuit and basically, like, shut down the Port of Oregon. But that, like, again, because the union recently signed a new contract, would declare the strike illegal, and you'd have, like, the police going in to try and break that mm -hmm. up. So not really a likely viable option given the current balance of forces. And so I think this was just seen as really the the best way to deal with this and continue to be able to maintain the union's operations because, uh, you know, a wall street journal article that I was reading on this, they mused hopefully that the bankruptcy could force the union to hesitate to use its typical militant tactics in the future, which is of course the whole reason that U S labor law is set up this way to try and force unions into negotiating in a very narrow range of, of items that are acceptable to us capitalism. Right. Uh, but, 
I don't really think that's likely to happen uh, because again, this litigation has been going on since 2012. Like workers have been like the union's been facing this verdict for years and that hasn't slowed down the ILWs organizing at all. We reported earlier this year, there was a big slowdown on the West coast during contract negotiations. The, the port of Vancouver in Canada was shut down for weeks. So like, this has been there and it hasn't stopped the ILWU from fighting for its membership. So I don't really see this bankruptcy process changing. that. No, well, especially not since the ILWU's response to this has been to put their, their core emphasis on like seemingly continuity of union operations, Mm -hmm. which does seem, you know, at least to my mind to be the number one, most critical thing and making sure that even if you don't have a whole lot of money around right now, you are still being effective at organizing you're still holding meetings, you're still facilitating communication between workers, all of the stuff that a union would be doing on a day-to-day basis. Right. And this process should finally allow them to move on from this stupid case Mm -hmm. and its ridiculous punitive verdict. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm really uh, hopeful that this will actually, you know, clear up some of the issues that the ILW has been facing and allow them to get back to focusing on what's really important and in supporting the workers. But uh, let's move to Starbucks Workers United, because since their customer action days, we've seen more filings for elections around the country. But today we're actually talking about where Starbucks anti-union campaign sits kind of within the legal system as we continue kind of our legal system analysis in this episode. Uh, So as we in the workers have said since the beginning, it was illegal for Starbucks to deny raises and benefits to the union stores. And finally, the NLR- an NLRB judge has actually agreed. As reported by Bloomberg Law on Thursday, the 28th of September, the first nationwide ruling... This is the first nationwide ruling against Starbucks. Uh, It was issued since this particular issue started in August of 2022 by, you know, uh, lifting wages to at least $15 an hour and providing benefits such as credit card tipping, increased training, and uh, faster sick time accrual to all stores that were not unionized and how that particular thing violates the NLRA. Yeah, and... And just to emphasize that, like, since before Starbucks enacted that policy, the union has been pointing out that it was clearly an illegal policy. And yet it's taken over a year to get the legal system to agree to that. Yeah, and it's not just a violation of the NLRA. It's one of the most fundamental violations of the NLRA that you could really conceivably do. Yeah. yeah. Besides the button clause, of course. <laughs> of That's course. Right. <laughs> Everyone knows button clause. Maslow's hierarchy of needs starts with a big, broad base that says button clause. That's <laughs> right. Well, the judge issued a ruling saying, quote, Starbucks used its top executive to launch a corporate-wide effort to manipulate its employees' free choice by conditioning their pay and benefits on their willingness to forego organizing, a direct attack on the act's central goals, end quote. And so... Absolutely correct. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so now the company will be forced to compensate all of the unionized workers with full retroactive pay, but... I mean, that's almost saying something too soon because the company itself has vowed to appeal the ruling, further extending how long the workers will have to wait for this justice. 
The union issued a statement saying, quote, this is a massive victory for Starbucks workers. It shows that Starbucks' anti-union campaign started from the top, was coordinated, and deprived thousands of workers who live paycheck to paycheck income that could be put towards food, bills, sick benefits, and more, end quote. And I mean, very true. And I'm just the intransigence of Starbucks is so infuriating to to no end. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing is ridiculous. Like, it's good. I I think, you know, part of the reason that we wanted to highlight this story, even though there has been so many rulings that didn't result in immediate things or mo- or just resulted in, you know, having to post a warning and say, we're sorry, <laughs> we won't do it again, but we'll definitely do it again. This is the first one, I think, you know, that we've seen that's had a nationwide monetary impact tied to it. It's unfortunate, as always, there's no punitive damages in here. Uh, so there's no actual deterrence because even if Starbucks loses every single appeal, all they're going to have to do is pay the wages they were legally required to pay in the first place. But, you know, we'll see how long the appeal drags out. But if they are forced to do that, this does at least serve as a huge and obvious precedent that, I would argue, could then be used to support Semex bargaining orders in the future for any other employer who tries to do something like this and to use that as a preventative measure. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Yeah. And I mean, also kind of what you were saying about the other repercussions, I mean, despite this ruling that these, you know, directions to break labor law came from the top, the judge refused to mandate managers go through the NLR training to uh, actually understand the NLRA or to renew the period in which decertifications cannot be filed. But uh, despite that, there was a couple other little inclusions in this. Uh, the or I guess I should say there was one other inclusion, is that uh, the the CEO, uh, Laxman Narasimhan, will actually have to read a notice to employees of their rights and also post notices in every store. We'll again have to see how that comes down because I don't know if... I know that Starbucks has been required to do that in a couple stores, but I don't even know if that has happened because of all of the many appeals. I mean, do you know if that is actually happened it's definitely happened at some because i've seen pictures of like the starbucks workers have posted of like the notices when they've had to post them but i'm sure there's a ton of them that are still in appeal but yeah you know obviously a huge part of this has been starbucks workers trying to force the company back to the table in order to get their first contract. And while unfortunately we haven't reached that point here, that's also been a big fight for a lot of the workers involved in the academic organizing wave that we've covered so much on the show. And thankfully we have some good news on that front this week. Because, you know, we talk all the time about strikes during uh, contract negotiations, but we don't always get a chance to talk about contract negotiations that don't require a strike. This week, however, we got a big one because uh, on September 22nd, the MIT Grad Student Union, members of UE Local 256, ratified their first contract after winning their union last year by 96%. And so the grad students at MIT were one of the, I believe actually maybe the largest new bargaining unit of last year when they won their union drive. Uh, And that had been a multi-year struggle centered around improving conditions for all grad workers, especially on issues like harassment protections, better conditions for international students, safety protections for lab workers, which can be especially important at a technical school like MIT. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, better wages and benefits. And so 
the the new contract that the workers won won improvements across the board, including a new third party arbitration process for dealing with harassment and discrimination. Now, while, while of course, you know, we understand that there are limitations to third party arbitration under a capitalist system. This is a huge improvement from the previous system for dealing with uh, harassment, uh, like discrimination issues, which relied entirely on going through the school's internal systems, which are, of course, incentivized to protect the institution, not the students. And so now having a third-party process to go through should give the workers a much better chance of actually successfully resolving issues relating to harassment and discrimination. Uh, workers also won an agency shop, which is a big win, which is basically kind of like the closest you can get to a closed shop legally in the U.S., since it's, of course, you know, banned uh, to actually force the workers to join a union. But in an agency shop, uh, you can actually have the system where, okay, we can't force a closed shop, which would be ideal, but anybody who's getting all the benefits from all the hard organizing work that the workers are doing but chooses not to join the union still has to pay into the organizing funds so that they're not just you know taking all the benefit from all the hard work that the workers have done from organizing without actually contributing to which it which is a pretty smart workaround and i got to say between hearing that and the things that they're actually winning i'm starting to think grad students at MIT might be pretty bright folks <laughs> yeah i would have to agree now uh you know as with so many of these negotiations mit did not make the process easy dragging their feet at the bargaining table but as reported by liberation news uh workers were prepared uh, just before the contract uh, was ratified to hold a vote to authorize a strike after which the administration abruptly changed course and stopped oh. digging in on so many of the issues how curious Huh. <laughs> uh, terrified of the power of a potential strike by the 8,500, uh, you know, members, I believe, of, of this bargaining unit, uh, the, the administration finally returned to the table and agreed to this uh, contract full of wins. Uh, in addition to, you know, winning those in really important things around harassment and discrimination in the agency shop, workers also want improved pay with a stipend increase of 5.4%. Improved dental benefits, equivalent to all other MIT employees. New subsidies for childcare, which we've talked about as being a really important issue for grad student workers. And a $1,200 grant for all international students to cover any fees that come up during their immigration process. And they also won new health and safety protections, as well as language to protect against overwork. I that's real. These are all really great wins. But just going back to that authorization vote real quick. I mean, I we have seen all and John commented about this last time, all these 90 plus percent authorizations to strike. I think MIT just didn't want to see a 90 percent plus. <laughs> They're like, you know, if that comes down, it's going to make us look bad. And, you know, maybe we are caving to a little bit of the collective pressure of the workers movement that is on its upsurge right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a huge win, you know, obviously not just for the workers at MIT, but for the broader academic organizing wave, because by proving that not only can academic workers win a union and force the, the school to recognize it, but they can force them to negotiate at the bargaining table and to sign a good union contract, which, as we talk so often, is one of the biggest challenges facing any, you know, new workers organization. This just further reinforces the power of unionizing and emphasizes that, you know, all this struggle and all this hard work, which union organizing absolutely is, 
does in fact pay off. And so uh, Sneha Kabiria, a member of the bargaining committee, told Liberation News, quote, I really hope that this is something that we're going to carry with us past graduate school, elevating this consciousness that workers have rights and workers have power and we can fight for better, end quote. Hell yeah. Yeah, something, something, unions, institutions of the revolution, uh, institutes, what is it, (laughs) universities, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Schools of communism. That's the one. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Jay Posadas once said, unions are like schools of fish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny uh so in our next story we're gonna be talking about some workers in macon georgia where workers have uh long fought a brutal anti-union campaign by tire manufacturer kumo tires since 2017 the workers there have been organizing for many of the same protections that we consistently highlight and are consistently highlighted by union struggle uh they went through two elections to get their union recognized by the state and company while organizing with united steel workers a simple set of statistics kind of shows how hard the company fought against their union with the first election having an 85 having 85 percent of the workers having signed cards and then losing that election 136 to 164 i mean that is a huge loss in i mean that's like what 35 or 40 percent loss in in like membership it's like uh i mean that sort of anti-union campaign must have been incredibly brutal this was actually reported by labor notes um so if you want to check out the the story that's also on there but like over the past two years since they actually won their second election they have been bargaining for their first contract which they have finally prevailed in achieving they won just yeah not not to interrupt but like just to to contextualize that for people that First election, they saw like the union busting by Como tires resulted in a drop of support of forty percent because that vote is a they went from eighty five percent signing cards to forty five percent voting in favor of the union. That is a huge drop. Yeah, it, it, like really, really oppressive campaign by the company. But I mean, they again moving to what they have won. They won paid lunch breaks, which effectively reduces the number of hours worked without loss in pay. How did they not have? I will say, as we go through this list, uh, listeners, I was stunned by the things that the workers had to get put in this contract that are already in labor law. Like that's one of the things that I think is so important. I know I'm getting ahead of it, but it's like this is why unions are so important because so many of our legal protections are ephemeral. Yeah. Well, I mean, in Georgia, I doubt that there's required paid lunch, but I know that that's not what you're referring to in this particular instance. Uh, but so uh, to continue, continue the list is they want a clear procedure for promotions because I'm guessing that it was just uh, whoever the manager's favorite people are who got promoted. Yeah. They got PTO being counted towards hours worked and therefore qualifying for overtime, which oh. I'm surprised that that is not something that is required because it's basically pto is like you had worked anyway uh a 3.5 percent raise for each of the first three years of the four contract a committee to uh address shop floor concerns with a three and three member board of the union and company members so similar to what we had referred to earlier with those uh you know management labor relations boards on the uh, at the company and also the right to refuse to work on damaged equipment this this, I believe, is the one that Dan is really referring to. 
That one, like, I saw that. I'm like, wait, what do you mean the right to? You already have the right to refuse to work on damaged equipment. This, and I say that in no way as a criticism of this contract or the workers, but to emphasize that, like, that's one of those labor rights that actually gets talked about sometimes in the U.S. as opposed to so many of the other ones where they're like, we don't want to talk about these. We're not going to enforce these. We don't care if these get broken. But, like, the right to refuse on damage, you don't even have to have a union to have the right to refuse to work on, on unsafe equipment. Just, like, for people to underline, if you work on any job site and your boss tells you to work on in, a, in an unsafe condition on unsafe or damaged equipment – you have the right to say no and sue them if they fire you. Now, of course, in reality, do you have the resources to do that? It's very difficult to fight that. But at least theoretically in law, there should have been no need for the workers to put this in their contract. But there clearly was a necessity or they wouldn't have fought for it, which again underlines that nobody that OSHA does not functionally exist in the way that people think that it does. It's, it, 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 there may as well be no occupational safety and healthcare administration because as we've talked about so many times the only people really capable of enforcing workplace safety laws are the workers and this contract is an example of that mm-hmm. yeah i mean cuz like you're saying that is really important i mean workers have been seriously injured after being forced to operate machinery that has been known to be damaged and now when something is tagged as damaged the workers themselves can just be like, no, you have to fix this before we are actually going to work on on this particular machine. Uh, yeah, I'm just like, this is if people have ever worked on a construction site, any industrial setting, you will know what lockout tagout is. Like that is a universal system used everywhere, and they had to. Ba- these workers basically had to have a multi year contract effort to get their boss to acknowledge that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, the workers themselves are excited for the Joint Improvement Committee as well, with one worker saying they believed upper management didn't even hear about the concerns because supervisors wouldn't bring the issues to them for fear of it reflecting bad on those supervisors. And also because during negotiations, upper management seemed to have little to no idea what the dangers even were present on the job. Again, I want to quote John here. What is your job? Yeah. (laughs) We are really asking, too. It's not a rhetorical question. Uh, I Every time I say, what is your job, I am sincerely wondering what the fuck you get paid to do. Like, they don't yeah, even it's know like, what's going on. I know on. what these workers' job is. They make all the stuff mm-hmm. that your company makes all the money off of. You, administrator, seem to not even know what they do and just don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I mean, James Golden, who is a worker who has faced a concussion on the job uh, after working on a piece of unsafe equipment, said, quote, we can actually sit down with someone who will listen and possibly change some things, end quote. And, I mean, like, you know, as we were saying, we can be kind of uh, skeptical about the actual effectiveness of these committees themselves. But in the long run, this is used as leverage for future negotiations mm-hmm. at the very least and possibly Maybe with some changes in the interim, although it's not great to necessarily count on those things. This new contract is the first successful new bargaining unit in the U.S. tire industry in over 40 years. That's fucking yeah. crazy. I mean, like, that's I, that really yeah. shocked me. And then I thought about the history of rubber 
and it shocked me a little bit less because I but that has been off people's radar for a long time since yeah. synthetic rubber was invented but like these are companies that were founded on straight up and down slave labor and regular mm-hmm. imperialism so just something to keep in the, the back of your mind whenever you see a news story about tire companies yeah that's also maybe even a good uh thing to look at when people are organizing their own like shops to kind of look at the history of the trade that they're actually working in in order to get a better grasp on what some of the wider conditions are that they're going to face or that their workers may face that they don't quite know their fellow workers face that they might not know about don't tell people to do historical materialism lena it's very rude So, uh, along with all of these other wins, they got a grievance procedure that will help protect workers from termination. And there was a worker, Alex Perkins, who said, quote, Now these people can go to work and be comfortable with saying, uh, quote within a quote, I'm going to purchase a house and purchase a car because I know that as long as I go to work and I do my job, I can't just be terminated because the supervisor doesn't like me, double end quote. Oh my God, economic security, what a novel concept. (laughs) Yeah, well, and again... I would also just like to point out how many different workers have we heard this exact same sentiment from? Meanwhile, all you hear from the fucking Democrats and their their fucking media outlets is how everything is wonderful and how Bidenomics has saved America and workers are doing great and why won't you fucking rabble stop complaining? So quick question. Yeah, look, we published a report that says uh, households and nonprofit checking accounts have more money in them than ever before. Wait, but haven't we seen the single largest increase in poverty in U.S. history of 12.4% in a single year? And the largest single year increase in homelessness and on and on and on. Oh, yeah, but we're all supposed to be really upset with China right now, a country that functionally got rid of those things for the most part. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because what they don't say is what you're really supposed to be mad at them is for making us look bad. That's true. Of course, of course. Well, and I guess as for workers who are making companies look bad, let's move to the the big story that we have been covering for the past couple weeks, the UAW. That's right, folks. The UAW Big 3 stand-up strike continued this week, really looking to shape the the future of auto work in the the country. And there was a little less, I will say, press coverage of it this week. I was bombarded a bit less by media. In some ways, good, because it wasn't a bunch of annoying debates about the presidential election, which largely had nothing to do with the issues involved in this strike. Uh, But it has, unfortunately, I think, also meant there's been a little less uh, public uh, viewpoint on like now getting into the third week of the strike, but there's still been a ton of stuff happening. And so it will, we'll try and cover this before we get into the really big announcement that happened during, uh, Friday's live stream. So, you know, as the strike has continued and negotiations have continued, Stellantis this week joined GM in deploying scabs to their, uh, mainly to their, their parts distribution centers, which have been on strike now for the past couple of weeks, uh, asking their salaried employees to volunteer to work scab shifts at multiple parts distribution centers in Michigan. And so that has, of course, also meant that there has been increased efforts, you know, to try and send scabs through picket lines. Uh, and folks, folks have pointed out, you know, like we talked about last week, the more the companies try and do this and try and go after the picket lines, 
we have seen more and more violence directed against workers by scabs. And so by continuing to ramp this up, Stellantis is only potentially prompting more of that. But in addition to those dangers on the picket lines this week, a lot of workers started to make clear in some of the more labor-friendly press outlets just how difficult and dangerous their jobs can be and how different that is from the way that auto worker jobs are presented by the big three. Uh, in an interview with Status Quo News, this is now the second time I've cited their reporting in, in this segment. They've been doing a really great job. Uh, a, a UAW worker at Ford in Chicago told of being forced to continue working at her station on the line when a sewage pipe burst, forcing them to work in, quote, ankle-deep poop water. Yeah. End quote. All because the company thought, well, we could shut down the line and get cleaners in here, but that would slow down production. I mean, there are... There are health and safety violations and there are bad working conditions and then there's ankle deep poop water which is literally mm -hmm. like a cartoon working condition it's mr burns slash mr crab's ass working conditions and we're all supposed to like both sides these kinds of stories yeah, yeah. and and during all this, the you know, when workers were like, uh, I don't think this is safe, like this is clearly hazardous to our health, the workers were told that if they left before the end of their shift that they would be fired. So Which is a violation of labor law, as we literally just pointed mm -hmm. out in the previous story. And something that has recently been in the news as causing the deaths of many mm -hmm. different workers, most notably those who were killed in a fucking tornado. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And again, you have the, the, this is all coming at the same time. Big Three's talking about how much they view their workers as just part of a big family. Because that's what you do with family, is you tell them that, you know, if they don't continue to work on this one SUV that might be delayed by a few hours if you bother to stop to clean up this factory, that you'll take away their livelihood. Yeah. That's how I normally treat my family. They, they don't tell you that their conception of a family is from 1800s uh, petty landowners <laughs> who just have 25 kids so that if a few of them die, you don't have to care. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, and I bring all this up, like, not just to emphasize how difficult, you know, auto work is, which it is, but also because it ties into one of the union's most, uh, I guess people would call most radical demands. Uh, but I also think it's one of their most important demands, which is the fight for a 32 hour work week, because that demand has been, you know, talked about in the mainstream press as, oh, it's, it, they're not serious. They're not actually fighting for that. They just put that on the list. Mm. Or it's been mocked by people as ridiculous, as like, oh, you want to just destroy the U.S. economy or something. Well, and, and my, my, my objection to one of those criticisms, I, I think, is kind of interesting because it's like, oh, they just put it on the list. Oh, it's just there so they can seem more radical. Motherfucker, then that is doing what it's supposed to. It, you're, you're talking about <laughs> right. it. It is now the demand <laughs> against which all other demands are measured, which is a fabulous situation to be in compared to where they were before <laughs> exactly exactly a hundred percent and but the thing is like in addition to the you know the the tactical and strategic element to that demand and how important it is for the broader labor movement it's also has a direct and immediate need behind it mm -hmm. because uh, there was a really good piece written by sarah lazar this week in the nation and workday magazine that documents exactly how difficult auto work is on the body and how because of the 40-hour work week or much more often the 50-hour or 60-hour or 70-hour or even longer work week uh that just compounds 
the injuries that auto workers accumulate because so many of these injuries are repetitive motion injuries. So when you lengthen the work week, you have more repetitive motion. You are just, you are like exponentially making worse the problem because not only are you adding more and more and more work, you're taking away the recovery mm-hmm. time of those people's bodies. Well, and like any fucking weird gym bro will tell you, like lifting doesn't build weights, rest builds weights and or builds muscle, whatever. And it's just like, it's the same fucking thing. Like these companies are demonstrating that they literally don't care if you fucking die because it's mm-hmm. more convenient for them. If you come in and work 80 hours a week for a few years and then die and then they get another person to come in and do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And these repetitive motion injuries that auto workers experience from rapidly manipulating parts and tools, hundreds, thousands, or sometimes depending on the operation, like if you're, you know, installing lug nuts or something, mm-hmm maybe tens of thousands of times a day. And that just accumulates on the body over time. Auto workers interviewed by Lazar reported devastating pain from repetitive strain to their backs, shoulders, knees, wrists, elbows, necks, essentially any part of your body, which you may have to awkwardly stress over and over and over again when doing things like installing brake pads, assembling transmissions, installing uh, window panes of glass into doors, things like that. Uh, these, the innumerable repetitive motion jobs that are required to build a modern car. And, and just as an example, one worker, Daniel Carpenter, who was interviewed by Lazar for the piece, described neck pain so severe that he eventually had to have a titanium plate installed in his neck. Now, that would be rough if, you know, Carpenter was close to retirement, if he was, you know, 60, 65. Daniel Carpenter is 40 years old and has already has suffered from so much repetitive motion injury at being an auto worker he had to have a titanium plate put in his neck yeah this is like, this is another crime by this by these companies like this is why the 32-hour work week is not like an this is not an abstract demand mm. this is not i have a, a platform that sounds nice and i want to fight for it this has a direct impact on the livelihoods and literally the length of the life of the workers involved in this work. This is a imminent demand that I frankly think is more than reasonable considering the toll that this work takes on auto workers' bodies. Yeah. Well, and a a point of clarification I might need too, is this just saying that there's a hard cap at 32 hours or that once you're past 32, it's overtime? I've seen discussions of both. Okay. So because that also does make a big difference because like the employers will just pay the overtime and still work you to the fucking bone. But this is a huge step towards disincentivizing that and also setting the standard so that other industries that are also very strenuous, like, you know, longshore work or whatever might be able to reach their or nursing uh, might be able to reach their 32 hour mark as well. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, with the overtime version of this demand, while it, you know, still could potentially allow the companies to work people Mm -hmm. 40, 50, depending on how it's set up more hours a week, by forcing them to pay overtime for it, what you're also allowing the workers to do is retire sooner sure. and put less of the strain on their body and accumulate less of the strain that way. So I, I you know, I, there's there's benefits to the workers re- like either way that you handle it. Sure. And so, really, I think it's important to focus on that because, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to that demand, and I think it's really vital that we be able to explain that this isn't just some pie in the sky thing. Like this matters, and it it has direct impacts on people's lives. And if the UAW can win that, 
That opens the door for millions and millions of other workers to demand the same thing. Like when people organized for the 40 hour work week, when people organized for the 50 hour work week, I'm studying 19th century labor organizing right now. And boy, the fight for the 10 hour day was really fucking hard. And over and over and over again, the companies came out and said, you can't do this. This is artificially restricting the day. This is ridiculous. It will make us uncompetitive. And it's shocking how the complaints that they made in 1840 are essentially the exact same complaints they are making in 2023. <laughs> and what that should tell you is that when they tell you they can't do that, they are lying. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and also I think people get the idea sometimes that just because something is a strategically advantageous thing to do, that that has to be the only reason you're doing it. And here's an interesting thing about strategy is that it's really, really great to do things for more than one reason at a time Absolutely. and try to accomplish a lot of goals with the least amount of action required, not because you're lazy, but because you have limited time and resources. <laughs> well, right. And I think that, you know, gets to why the UAW clearly spent a huge amount of time and effort organizing their strategy for this strike. Right. And we saw this week how much that's been paying off. So, you know, Friday has now become UAW live stream day uh, because of the strike strategy. It's become basically appointment viewing for anybody who cares about the working class and has the time during the day to, to watch those. And so much like last week, uh, the live stream was delayed because just before uh, Sean Fain was supposed to come on and announce potential increases to the strike, uh, just like last week where Stellantis came in with a last-minute uh, concession because of the pressure from the strike, this week it was GM's turn. And GM came in and agreed to a demand that technically wasn't even on the list and a lot of people thought was impossible. And uh, some of those people include the CEO of GM, <laughs> who said that this was impossible, which is that right before the announcement, the live stream this week, GM came in and caved and agreed to bring its battery plant production under the UAW master agreement. Hell yeah. That's a, that's a fucking huge one. I mean, and again, uh, or not again, but like, uh, this actually wasn't even legally... Uh, demand technically which is really interesting i learned this that there are things that you can't legally demand <laughs> right uh yeah the basically u.s labor law has pretty strict boundaries on what you are legally allowed to ask the company to negotiate over with a threat of strike but and alex press pointed this out on twitter really well and, and, and that like just because the law says you can't make that a mandatory uh, condition of bargaining, okay, so what? You, if your union has enough power, you can tell them, yeah, okay, we're not saying we'll, we'll stay out on strike if you don't agree to this, but we're also saying you should probably agree to this. Look, you didn't <laughs> actually pay me for weed here in the weed shop. You paid me for a sticker, and the sticker comes with <laughs> weed. Okay, <laughs> and that's the kind of fuckery like every corporation is gonna like. It, it's good to juice the law in your favor. I'm just saying, it's good to win. Is that yeah, complicated? Just, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, hey, so this is on the list of things we want. We're willing to strike over everything. I mean, everything else. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, well, and it's it's but it's it's also great though because it emphasizes 
that the UAW leadership now is thinking on really a different wavelength mm-hmm. than so many of the other, even relatively good <laughs> union leaderships in the U.S. with an understanding that law is an instrument of class power and it is not some magical or ordained thing dropped from the sky by God. Like <laughs> that law in a capitalist society is set up to serve the pur- the purposes of the business. And so there's no reason why workers, when they actually have the balances of force in, the, in their favor, such as during a strike, should feel constrained by it. And, and uh, Alex Press actually pointed out that she had uh, written about, you know, the UAW convention in a piece earlier this year and highlighted something that Sean Fain said during his closing address, where he said, quote, This week, I've heard some talk about what we can't do, about what the law says, or about this or that subject of bargaining. And the law has its place. But the UAW wasn't founded by asking for permission. The founders of this union didn't wait for the law. They didn't worry about the law. They wanted their dignity, and they wanted their fair share, and they did what the hell they had to do to get it, end quote. Hell yeah. Um, Correct. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the thing is, you know, we, we hear that kind of rhetoric... Not as often as we should, mm-hmm. but you know we hear it hear it from time to time. But we don't always necessarily see it put into practice. And this strike, <laughs> this week, we have now seen exactly what Sean Fain was talking about six months ago put into practice, and only possible because of the power of the rank and file that put him into office. It's only because the union has been able to get so militant, precisely because of the power of the actual individual members that any of this was was possible and and like you know we'll talk about the other parts of bargaining in just a sec but i really think it's it's vital that we emphasize how big of a win this is because it's it's something they said they couldn't win it's something the law said you couldn't demand and over and over and over again there has been this talking point that has been tried to be deployed by the right wing that auto workers don't support EVs. They hate electric vehicles. <laughs> they hate the green transition. And that's why they hate Biden and they're going to vote for Trump. And I don't give a shit about any of the presidential politics of that shit. But we know that stuff was a lie to begin with. And GM just admitted it because GM has been saying this whole time oh, battery plant cars, they take less labor. We can't pay battery plant workers the same as, you know, uh, gas powered cars because then our cars will be uncompetitive. We'll have to raise prices. No one will buy our cars. It'll make the industry impossible. Guess what? But all that was a fucking lie. Well, it's, and GM just admitted they were lying the entire time by agreeing to this demand. Yeah, and also, like, it's obvious that they were lying the entire time because when you say some shit like uh, they take less labor, uh, that's why wages are hourly. Literally. Right. Well, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and also, the other thing, again, there's been this idea that, oh, we can't do a just transition. We have to make EV jobs cheaper or nobody will buy the cars. Lie, mm-hmm. again, every time. And it also, I think critically, one of the things I really want to hammer on on this is that I have heard so many fucking Democratic politicians in the last 10 or 15 years talk about how we need a just transition. We need to help workers move out of you know polluting industries and into clean industries over and over and over again. Great rhetoric. I agree with that. I haven't seen them do a goddamn thing to put that into practice. And 
The UAW just accomplished more towards a just transition in a three-week strike than the Democratic Party has accomplished in 20 fucking years. Well, because the Democratic Party's idea of making sure that workers were able to transition into clean energy jobs was to give Elon Musk a bunch of fucking government subsidies for over a decade. And it's just like, oh, great. So he can what? So he can destroy the entire industry and gut it and replace it with a bunch of tech brain morons and people who are paid just barely enough to survive to make vehicles that intentionally kill the user really fucking wonderful plan everybody and the other thing too you know everybody talking about oh this strike's gonna make the big three uncompetitive blah 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 blah, blah. like that's also been one of musk's arguments to tr- to try and keep workers from unionizing at tesla and guess what mm-hmm. <laughs> battery workers at gm are now like hey we can get the same 30 40 dollars an hour depending on top rate you know that the workers at the gas plants are getting so y'all that stuff elon's telling you that's full of shit maybe you know uh-huh that uaw master agreement might be something the Tesla workers might want to look at. Yeah, I was going to say, stuff like, like this. Uh, the, t- the clock isn't only ticking on the big three, but uh, it's ticking on Tesla as well. Well, and just like mm-hmm. also, I just had like a, a, a series of like a montage of brain flashes of Elon Musk having his Howard Schultz news cycle, and I it <laughs> almost broke me before I snapped back to reality. So that was <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah, I saw like Gabriel Winant, I think on Twitter, was, was talking about, he's like, we may be a approaching the like most clear like <laughs> choice ever in a confrontation of Sean Fain versus Elon Musk. <laughs> I cannot um, wait. I cannot fucking wait. I'm just like, you thought the percentage of Americans who supported the strike at the big three was high. Boy, just wait till you see that. <laughs> but so in addition to, you know, the incredible victory of being able to bring all those EV workers at GM into the same umbrella contract as the rest of the workers, Fain also laid out points of progress that have been made with across the board. Um, in just three weeks on strike, they've been able to force automakers to raise their wage offers from the initial 9% offered by Ford to now an offer of 23% <laughs> of a raise. Still not, clo- not, uh, not where it needs to be but really big progress in just three weeks. And GM and Stellantis are not far behind, offering 20% right now. Yeah, going from 9 to 23, that's almost triple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's big. <laughs> I mean, that's like not a tiny... A lot of contracts, they're like arguing over like the last couple of percent percentage points that is not the terrain that the uaw is operating on here <laughs> no <laughs> they're like oh we'll give you nine percent ah nice try uh, uh four, 14 no nope, yeah still going. fuck you <laughs> uh i believe that we said 40 uh i'm pretty <laughs> yeah. sure that it still says 40 on this piece of paper do i need to show it to you again yeah yesterday's <laughs> price is today's price <laughs> that's yeah, right so Additionally, there's been big progress made on on fixing the absolutely abominable situation at all three companies for temp workers. All three companies have in- increased their starting wage offers for temps to, to at least $20 an hour, higher at, I believe, at least one or two of them. And all of them have agreed to a transition plan for temp workers to top-rate full-time work uh, at a pace of three years for Ford and four years for GM and Stellantis. Uh, Fain did say during the conference they intend to try and push to make that better. But those are both commitments, even if that doesn't improve, to transition workers who are currently temps, some of whom have worked as temps for the highest length I think I saw in any of the articles was six years, Mm -hmm. 
This would open up a position to have during the life of one contract for any temp worker who is there to make it in that lifetime up to the full uh, full rate, which I, that's a huge gain. I feel like I even saw more than that, like longer than six years from one or two workers. But that might I might be misremembering. Either way, it's still like good that we're getting these things down. And who knows? They might come down even further. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and so adding to the list of things that the company said would never happen, could definitely not come back, they're never going to agree to this, you're going to have to come up with something else. Uh, Cola, which all three companies are like, nope, that's a pre-2008 relic, we had to get rid of it, we can't bring it back. Well, Ford and Stellantis have already agreed to bring back Cola fully, and GM is likely not too far behind. So continuing to make huge gains every week. And the union has also forced all three companies to drop their initial demands for reduced profit sharing, where the companies are like, all right, fine, we'll give you a raise, but you have to take less profit sharing. And they're like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. That's a concession. We're not doing that. And all three companies have been forced to back off. And Ford was actually been forced to increase profit sharing in their negotiations. So, Hell yeah. Um, union also won pay increases for tool allowances for skilled trades workers at Ford and Stellantis and is currently working on a similar agreement with GM. And so again, there I'm laying all these out. There still isn't even an official tentative agreement. Mm-hmm. These are just the wins that the comp that the UAW's won so far. <laughs> yeah, and that's the power and, of the strategy that they're using, right? Because every week the the big three have to like scramble up until the last minute and be like, uh uh uh, what offering do we submit to Fane? And then they hand it to him <laughs> and he's like, Oh, this is actually not bad. Maybe we don't strike any of your plants this week. See you again next Friday. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. No, I know. That's what I loved about this because, you know, it was almost a little bit anticlimactic when we got to the end of the live stream this week and there were no new strikes. But considering all the major progress, it, it ties directly into the strategy where the whole idea is like the level of pain that the companies feel during the strike is directly proportional to their willingness to negotiate on the union's demands. And so when the companies dig their heels in, more plants get struck. Yep. And stop, when, hitting like yourself, week, stop hitting yourself stop hitting yourself yeah no i mean that basically is what i well and but it goes along to the truth that we talk about before every strike which was really emphasized in the the teamster struggle at ups and here at the big three which is that the companies cause the strike mm-hmm. the workers are the ones trying to bring it to its swiftest possible end they're just trying to get the companies where they need to be yeah mm-hmm. so yeah absolutely um and so this week, when the companies made quite a bit of progress towards what the workers need, they get a reprieve. And so all the places that have been on strike remain on strike. And Fane was also very, very, made it very clear multiple times through his live stream of like, yeah, we're not adding any new plants this week, but we're also not just going to sit around. They can't just rest on the good agreements they made this week. If there's no significant major progress again next week, New plants are walking out, so the pressure is continuing to stay on while continuing to operate You know, at exactly the strategy they said they'd be working at at the very beginning of the strike. Hell yeah, hell yeah. All of which just emphasizes how effective this strategy has been. Like, I think, like, it's one of those things where sometimes, you know, some of these strikes, I feel like you have to, like, 
there needs to be hindsight to to really evaluate how well it's done. We're seeing in real time <laughs> every week how this tactic has really empowered the union, and it's just been really impressive well, to see. Well, that's another strength of the tactic, right, is that it provides live feedback compared to a lot of other tactics yeah. where it's like, okay, we're maneuvering, we're trying to get all of our pieces set up for the big confrontation, and we'll find out how we did afterwards. No, 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 no. In this situation, you get weekly updates on precisely what is happening and why, and like I said at near the beginning of the episode, documentation, real-time information, these are critically important things to have. And in any democratic organization, transparency. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, ex- that's exactly what I was going to get to is that one of the things that Sean Fain had said early in, in this process is that he was so dissatisfied with the previous administrations mm-hmm. behind closed doors bargaining where no one knew what the fuck was going on. That has, you know, changed. They, they changed their strategy specifically to be more transparent, to speak to the workers, to give people updates. And that has in turn caused all of the workers to know what's going on and to believe that they're winning this fight and to fight harder because they know they're winning. Yeah, it's not just that they changed that strategy. It's that they've basically entirely eliminated any kind of secrecy or opaqueness in the union at all. Like, I Mm -hmm. I can't think of a single thing that they've done that they didn't say they were going to do to God and everyone beforehand and then <laughs> proceeded to do exactly what they said they were going to do. <laughs> well, and I mean, then there, I mean, there have been some, uh, you know, unfair, in my opinion, critiques of like, oh, well, they're not telling the workers where they're going to strike next. It's like, yo, I'm sorry, but you don't just like hand out the whole plan of like where you're going to strike next. I was listening to, uh, what was it? Uh, Rich Boyer? Yeah, uh, Rich Boyer who who commented on that, who was like, yo, I mean, we are being incredibly transparent with all of these things. And if like it slips where we're going to strike next, the company's just going to be prepared. So mm-hmm. we're keeping that under our hats. But beyond that, everything else is right out here in front. Right. Well, and, and I mean, to that point, you know, there was a quote that I, I saw from, uh, yeah, so there was a, a tweet that I saw this week that I really thought like summed up how democratic this is and why that has made it so more, much more powerful. And this was uh, from a reporter, McKenna Schuler, who report, is a staff reporter for the Orlando Weekly, who was speaking with UAW workers in Orlando right after the announcement about the negotiations and how they differ from previous years. And one of the workers, this was a, a worker at Stellantis, who's worked uh, for Stellantis, previously Chrysler, for 26 years, who described the difference saying, quote, our past leadership wasn't, I don't believe they believed in us as much as he does, end quote. Yeah, I mean, that's that says so much right there in, in that, like, if the workers know that the administration believes in them enough to have this level of transparency and engagement from the workers, I mean, that translates directly into, like, rank-and-file action, which is the thing yeah. that gets wins. And I mean, it's even that energy, we're even seeing it outside the big three. Like we saw, you know, the big win in academic workers last week where the, the grad students at UMaine joined the UAW. And this week we saw a, a, a win in auto manufacturing where uh, workers, 300 workers in Detroit at the Grupo Antoline, a company that makes doors and overhead systems for Ram trucks and has been non-union for years, have filed to join the UAW for the first time 
this week. I mean, the plant opened five years ago, has been non-union since, but clearly the militancy of this strike has, has made a bunch of those workers be like, you know what? Yeah, we want. I I think we do we do need it. <laughs> this seems like the right fucking one. Yeah, we want in on this shit. Hell yeah, man, that yeah, rocks so, so much. This strike is continues to be inspiring, and and I think obviously we've already seen is going to shape the future of auto work for the near future. But I think there's a lot of stuff coming out of this that's going to help reshape the labor movement as we see mm-hmm. it going forward. Yeah, including like, I mean, the militancy of a, of a good president, which leads us right into our first meme in the meme review, which I saw this and fucking died. It was so good. <laughs> so Sean Fain has created a Twitter account recently. And uh, this is a, in this is a, just a tweet from him where there is like, I guess a photo of the bachelor or the bachelorette, yeah. I guess. Sure, yeah. Because that's a bunch of guy, guys standing there. And there's three of them, and they're labeled GM, Ford, and Stellantis. And there's two roses on this pedestal, and it says, Tune in to UAW's Facebook page at 2 p.m. on Friday, October 6th, to see who gets the rose. Because, <laughs> like, <laughs> I just love this, like, really, really blatant, like, we are pitting you against each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it because it's the thing is that it's putting the shoe on the other foot. The companies try and do this to the workers all the time, pit them against each other. And this is just turning it completely around and being like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Well, <laughs> like, but then we're all doing the same job. Why would we be against each other? Let's make these motherfuckers dance to our tune. Yeah, That's right. It, it, it's one of the things that I really love about Fane's whole energy is that he's not doing anything like particularly super outlandish or like crazy no. creative that takes a lot of effort. He's just doing really normal things that haven't been done up to this point with with a sense of glee and I mean, that connects with workers because this is the kind of shit we all wish we could say to the people who run our companies. Absolutely. Also, UAW, sell the UAW Eat the Rich shirt. (laughs) It it will contribute greatly to the strike fund. Trust me. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. So this next one, uh, this is, uh, folks have seen the, you know, the job interview two panel template before, uh, pretty basic one. You've got, you know, three managers, uh, on one side of the table and the applicant on the other side. Uh, and so you've got the managers asking, do you work well under pressure? And the applicant, yes, I do. And then the managers in the second panel, great. Because we fabricate urgency through poor management, uneven distribution of duties, and an inflated sense of self for upper management. <laughs> I hadn't scrolled down, and I don't know why, because this is outdated by this point, but when I only saw the first panel, I thought, do you work well under pressure? Yes, I do. Great, because we we manufacture submersibles that go to look at the oh. Titanic wreck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm sure there must have been some of those. <laughs> but great format for a couple months ago. But yeah, yeah, I mean... To this particular one, I mean, it's just so true. I mean, anybody who's worked for any company has known that, you know, there's understaffing and so there's false urgency. Working under pressure is because Mm -hmm. the company puts false pressure on you, the worker. Yeah, well, I was just at one of my stops recently, and the the employees in the break room were complaining about their like floor manager, who's a real asshat. And they were like, "Oh yeah, he likes to act like he works so fucking hard, and then he's always golfing. He always comes in and he checks people on their like uniforms, but then he like wears his like weird, outlandish like fucking golf outfits. I guess he's obsessed with golf." And they just like went on and on, and I'm like, "Yeah, he's a manager. 
that's those positions produce those people <laughs> or they attract them those are the two things they do <laughs> it's yeah. very true exactly. very true um, but speaking of producing things, we got our one of our favorite meme pages, Cats and Hard Hats, that seems to just be on a perpetual tear. And so this is a cat in a hard hat on his iPhone, and it says, uh, me after any slight workplace inconvenience, one star review, this place sucks a booty hole, post. <laughs> and I love that. You should always negatively review your employer. I'm waiting to do mine until I quit my job because I want to be very detailed. I want them to know it was me, but uh, <laughs> maybe that's not the strategy you want to pursue. So just think about what works for you. Yeah. <laughs> the only right. good use for uh, glassdoor.com. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And so the next one, you know, as we have, have officially moved into October, you know, we got to get those important PSAs out there, folks. So this is, uh, you know, it's just a picture of a, of a Snickers bar, but... There's something that's not Snickers inside of it. And it's, parents, please check your child's candy at Halloween this year. My son just found an entire Shen Yun ad in his candy bar. <laughs> you know, I this, am mad this is back. This is not so far off, because I don't know if we were recording or not, but I was just talking to you about how I recently found out that the Loma Linda food products that I like to buy at Aldi are actually produced by the Seventh-day Adventist church out in Loma Linda, California. So, honestly, Shen Yun Snickers bar is seeming less like a joke to me right now (laughs) (laughs) extremely unfortunate very cursed country (laughs) yeah and and then continuing our uh our kind of spooky season memes we got our more cute one which is the uh hashtag solidarity season mood board with a uh four different images with uh text for each and there's this cat who is just like staring off into the distance it's got a little witch hat it's actually very cute and it's uh hexing the bosses then they've got kermit the frog on a bicycle with a nice uh, scarf and it's rolling up on the picket line and then uh we've got a worker in a cwa jacket sitting there looking really cool cozied up in union swag and then there's a business suit wearing guy with a pumpkin head and it says on my way to organize my work place yeah and uh i like this i like this aesthetic and uh you know we got to keep this rolling all the way into the spooky season and beyond yeah tag yourself i'm uh autumn kermit on the bicycle (laughs) (laughs) hell yeah i do feel like trying to go into work with a jack-o'-lantern on your head would be pretty difficult (laughs) but i appreciate this person's dedication to trying to organize their i think maybe if you cut the eye holes a little bigger you might experience more success (laughs) yeah Yeah. All right. Well, that is it for this week. We want to thank everyone who supports us. It is the only way that we get any funding at, and that is done at patreon.com slash work stoppage. You can get access to all of our bonus content and we appreciate that so very much. And make sure to jump in the Discord and come hang out with us. There's all sorts of other news that doesn't make it into our show because as we, I mean, as we're over a hundred and some minutes we still have so much stuff that uh, we unfortunately couldn't get to but there is a lot more to check out in the discord also just right to be clear certain- if, if we did this show every single day for an hour we couldn't cover all the labor stories happening in the united states alone 
much less the world. So just that's very true. Clear. That's very true. And despite you know that limitation, please write us a five star review on Apple Podcasts and mm-hmm. actually do the little written part. That actually makes a really big difference. Uh, you know, in that review, write something that says that the one star reviews are all jet ski dealership owners and, and pieces of shit bosses. Tell us if you're Fall Kermit on the bicycle or if you're Jack o' Lantern head business person. Hmm? That's right. <laughs> We're dying That's to right. know. <laughs> and then uh, follow us in all the places. The links are at workstoppagepod.com. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. I won't pick up the phone Cause they won't leave me alone They said that I'm working late I'm already working till late They said, kid, you stay till nine I said, but that's over time I'm fucking losing my mind This fucking rock is back and right in the head I'm feeling 10 out of 10 With this hole in my head Now I'm so 